Leapers. Written and read by TJ Tooley. Part 1 Come on, come on, come on, come on! Carson wished the driver would go faster. Traffic was moving at a snail's pace. Are you sure there isn't a better route? He asked for what must have been the third time. Yes, I'm sure, the driver said while holding up the map on his phone. He seemed annoyed, but Carson didn't have time to worry about that. He took the phone from the man's hands and zoomed out to see his options. There was construction four blocks ahead, which was responsible for his bumper-to-bumper nightmare. Carson checked his watch while he weighed his options. Screw it, he said as he opened the door and climbed out. Hey, the driver yelled as Carson started running. I'm still charging you for the whole ride. Carson did not hear him. He was in a dead-out sprint down the busy downtown sidewalks. He pushed past pedestrians, darted past street vendors, and even leaped over a new mother stroller. Two more blocks, he thought to himself. I can do this. Carson did not work out every day, but he was still in decent shape. Running in a suit and tie does make things more difficult, but he had a secret. Everything he wore was athletic material. Charcoal gray golf slacks and matching jacket, athletic footwear that could pass for black dress shoes, breathable and flexible white collared shirt, and a striped necktie rounded out the look. After one last turn, he reached the courthouse and saw three men in suits purposefully climbing the massive stone staircase. He pulled out his phone as he made a beeline for the trio. Damn it, how did you get here so quickly? One of the men asked as Carson quickly fell into step with them. You know my client has no comment, Mr. James. By now Carson knew most defense attorneys in the state. Many of them did not like him, and even less tried to hide it. Carson ignored the mousy, gray-haired attorney, held out his phone as a microphone, and addressed the client. It was smart to move the court date to 6 a.m. on Christmas morning. Carson said as he fell in stride with them. Did you do it in secret so that there would be no press and less angry stockholders? My client has no comment, Mr. James, the attorney repeated as they kept walking. Mr. Gardner, did you know your son was embezzling money from your company? I said my client has no comment. Harold Gardner was the patriarch of the powerful Gardner family. For generations, his family had owned land, businesses, and banks. They were the elite of the elite. Harold had everything handed to him growing up and was widely considered the least successful of his family. Harold had been in charge ever since his father Francis had passed. Harold would have been the biggest embarrassment in family history if it wasn't for his scandal-prone children. He had been busted several times on business malpractice and insider trading, 
but his money kept him from doing serious jail time. Mr. Gardner, were you aware that the bank account that the funds were transferred to has your name on it as well? Carson pressed on. I said my client has no comment, Mr. James, the attorney yelled as he forced himself between Carson and Gardner. Carson quickly climbed three steps in front of all three men. Gardner's bodyguard stood in front of the group. Even though he was two steps lower, he still towered over Carson. When the man crossed his arms, Carson thought the seams of his jacket would surely burst. It was rather intimidating, but Carson chose not to show fear. He locked eyes with the bodyguard's sunglasses and stood his ground. Mr. Gardner, did you order your son to take the fall for your crimes? He asked without looking away. The bodyguard pushed Carson backwards hard. He painfully caught himself on the stairs. Your companies keep failing, Mr. Gardner, but you stay rich, he yelled as the others started climbing the stairs again. How many offshore bank accounts do you have? Gardner, as an attorney, had almost reached the top of the steps, but the bodyguard continued to block Carson's path. Does your wife know about the offshore accounts, or do you use those to secretly pay off your mistresses? I mean, she probably knows, right? After all, she is a more successful businessman than you. Carson must have struck the right nerve, because Gardner stopped walking with his attorney and half walked, half ran down the stairs towards him. He pushed past his bodyguard and grabbed Carson by his throat. Ex-wife, Gardner said as he stared Carson down, and the only reason that ungrateful gold digger has any success in this world is because of me. Go ahead and write that in your stupid tabloid. Sir, the Times is a well-respected- Sir, I must insist you walk away, the attorney interrupted as he gestured towards the courthouse. Don't say another word until we are inside. Carson gasped for breath as Gardner released his neck. He knew he was under the man's skin, so he decided to ask a final question that he was certain would get him punched in the face. Your son isn't smart enough to pull off this operation on his own, so which is it? Are you a criminal, or are you just bad with money? Gardner lunged forward in a fit of anger and tackled Carson painfully down the stone steps. He threw a punch that crushed the left side of Carson's face. As his bodyguard helped him stand up, Gardner adjusted his shirt and spat on Carson. My company and my idiot family are only successful because of me, Gardner yelled as his bodyguard pulled him away. Nothing is done at Gardner Industries unless it goes through me first. Carson couldn't help but smile. Gardner's face said it all. He had just messed up. Even if he was innocent, he just gave a Times reporter a quote that would be terrible for his image. He pulled out his phone and revealed it to still be recording. You will be hearing from my office the attorney said as they walked away. Carson stood up and brushed off his clothes. He noticed some reporters from the Herald and Post quickly getting out of their vans. Crap! How the heck did you beat us here, Carson? Do you just sleep in the courthouse or something? Something like that, he said as they ran up the stairs. Carson painfully walked to the top of the stairs and entered the courthouse. Just inside the doors at the security checkpoint sat one of Carson's secret weapons. Devin Porter, had been a security guard at the courthouse for the last 10 years. He was built like a refrigerator, but was as soft as a teddy bear once you got to know him. Everyone who worked at the courthouse loved him. When Carson began pursuing journalism as a career, he used to go to the courthouse every day to listen to cases. He would write up stories based on the trials, then compared what he wrote to what was published. Eventually, he got his internship, then was hired as a reporter, but every time he saw Devin, he always found time to sit and talk. They had developed such a great relationship over the years that Devin would call Carson any time a high-profile case was changing rooms, days, or times. Without his help, Carson would not be nearly as successful as he was today.
I hope whatever you got from Gardner was worth the black eye you're going to have, Devin said as he stood up to shake Carson's hand. His hand was easily the size of Carson's face. It was, Carson answered. Man, it's almost 2020. New decade, new you, you know? Maybe try not to get hurt as much. What can I say? It gets results, Carson said with a laugh. He reached into his pocket and pulled out an envelope. I've got two tickets for the game against Boston if you want them. Get out, Devin yelled as he excitedly brandished the tickets. You're too good to me, man. Carson didn't feel bad bribing his sources. He did it all the time. He laughed as Devin did a celebration dance. You gonna be there too? Devin asked. Carson had not intended to go to any games. He had only bought the tickets as bribes for informants. He had not even considered going out with a source or informant before. He always associated those activities as things friends would do. If he was being honest with himself, Devin was probably the closest thing to a guy friend he had. He felt closer to Devin than any of his other informants or sources. Perhaps they were actually friends now. Maybe next time. Today is February 7th, 1984. If you are reading this journal, I am probably dead. I need a way to document my findings where nobody would accidentally find them. Who I am is not important, but if you hear that Stuart Kelly is wanted or that I have been found dead, I need somebody to know the truth and tell my story. I know about the existence of a secret organization. It has operated in this country for decades, maybe even longer. Generations of powerful men who have infiltrated every facet of society. I will prove its existence by documenting whatever intel I can gather, and possibly joining the order if I can. The world needs to know who has been pulling the strings of politicians, businessmen, and other prominent figures. What are their goals? How deep is their grasp? I am leaving you my journals so that you can hopefully expose this conspiracy if I couldn't. Good luck. Stay safe. Godspeed. Tuesday, December 6th, 1983. I was beginning to suspect my boss was corrupt. I assumed it was just shady business practices or personal scandal that could ruin the company, so I started keeping an eye on him. Francis Gardner is a very meticulous man. He follows a daily schedule to the minute, so when he starts having unscheduled meetings and phone calls, I knew something was off. Yesterday, I noticed some men in suits show up at the office unannounced. They walked straight into Gardner's office without knocking. One of the men had a black briefcase with him when they arrived, but left without it. I asked the secretary if there was a meeting scheduled, but there wasn't. I asked if she had seen the men before. She said once or twice, always unannounced. I decided to stay late, see what I can do, but at 9 p.m. he was still in his office. I knocked on his door and asked if I could get him anything or if he'd be staying later. He politely declined and told me to go home and rest up for the next day of work. I hid in the shadows across the street and waited for him to leave. It was almost 1.30 a.m. when his driver picked him up in front of the building. Gardner was holding the black briefcase. I followed on foot for a few blocks before hailing a cab. To my surprise, the driver dropped Gardner off in front of Trinity Church. I had my cab driver drop me off around the corner. As I walked back to the church, I noticed armed security guards in front of the building and patrolling the adjacent cemetery. A couple of homeless people, Tom and Mary, were camped in front of the building across the street. They asked if I had any spare change, and I made a deal with them instead. Let me sit here with you and act like everything is normal for five bucks each, then another ten dollars each, 
if they watch the church and tell me every time men like this enter. Two more cars showed up, the police chief and a well-known business owner, followed by the mayor and the district attorney. Using my camera, I was able to see CEOs of three major banks, a couple well-known politicians, more business owners, and even more that I did not recognize. There is something arrogant about a secret meeting of powerful men being held in the heart of a busy city. A few drunk men tried to enter the church and were forced away by the security guards. They were like bouncers outside of a club. A few more men in suits trickled in, and I checked my watch and saw that it was almost 2.30. I knew I needed to get home and get some rest before the next workday, so I paid Tom and Mary and went home. It is now my goal to figure out when the next meeting will happen. I will also stake out at the church every so often. You never know what you may find. Sunday, January 1st, 1983. Nothing happened for almost a month. I was sitting on the street with Tom, ready to give up, when I saw a man who looked extremely paranoid walking towards the church. He was a good-looking young man in a gray pinstripe suit. He had light blonde hair and wore glasses. He was constantly looking over his shoulder and avoiding eye contact with anybody he walked past. I followed him at a distance. He entered the church grounds and walked to the smaller part of the cemetery. I watched from across the street as he carefully placed a book on the statue of John Watts. Looking content, he turned and purposefully walked away without looking back. I watched him disappear into the nearby subway, and when I looked back at the statue, the book was gone. I ran back to Tom and asked if he saw where the book had gone. He said a priest had walked outside and around the building, then quickly back inside. He must have grabbed the book, but why? I went to the church to ask, but the only priest I could find was mid-sermon and couldn't have possibly been the man Tom saw. Maybe he was lying to me. Maybe another priest was helping cover something up. I will have to keep investigating. The rest of the morning flew by. Carson had rushed back to his office and quickly typed up an article complete with his new scandalous quote from Mr. Gardner. It was almost lunchtime, but he wanted to meet with the chief editor as quickly as possible. He emailed his draft, made his way to the executive offices, and knocked on the door. Come in, you've got a short five, go. Carson entered the office of Harry Wentzler, editor of the Times. It was Mr. Wentzler that first saw potential in Carson's writing. He offered him the internship, even though they were not hiring at the time, and when the time came, he hired him on as a reporter. Carson owed a lot to Mr. Wentzler, but now he was an obstacle standing in his way. Sir, I just submitted the Gardner piece you were asking me to do, complete with a quote from this morning, and you will find that extremely damning. He watched as Mr. Wentzler opened the email and quickly skimmed it. His eyes darted from side to side behind his round, red-framed glasses. This is pretty good, Carson, he said, sounding impressed. Thank you for staying on top of this and catching the time change of the trial. Just doing my job, Carson said, trying to sound modest. I was wondering if... Now that I have finished the story, I could... I'm going to stop you right there, Mr. Wentzler interrupted. I know what you're going to ask, Carson, and no. I'm sorry, but I simply can't afford to have one of my reporters running around chasing conspiracy theories when there is real work to be done. Oh, and put some ice on your face or something. Understood, Carson said as he walked out of his office. He was not surprised to hear this response. He had been shot down multiple times since he became a reporter. 
He knew that he was capable of investigating on the side, but he was hoping that he could devote more of his days to it and not waste time chasing down crooked politicians and shady businessmen. Frustrated that all of his hard work had been for nothing, Carson packed up his brown leather messenger bag and left. He went to the coffee shop on the ground level of his building and ordered herbal tea and a panini. He took over a table with his laptop and some files. He may not have been given permission to pursue the story, but that would not stop him. Order for Carson. He looked up and saw a young woman walking towards him, holding a tray with his lunch. She was wearing the shop's uniform black t-shirt and jeans, which she customized with a silver necklace in the shape of a rose. He quickly moved some of the files to make room for the plate and absentmindedly adjusted his hair. Here you go, she said as she set down his food. She always had a big smile on her face, no matter how her day was going. Thank you, Miss Ford, Carson said as he smiled in return. Miss Ford, she said with a laugh. Okay, then. Does this meet your standards, Mr. James? Okay, okay, fair enough, Carson said. Thanks, Jesse. What happened to your face? Are you okay? I am, he said as he inspected his bruising face on his phone. Got in a fight with an old man and lost. The two shared a laugh. What are you working on today? She said as she tilted her head to look at his notebook. That looks kind of complicated. Normally Carson wouldn't trust anybody with his notes, especially when he had a chance of breaking a story. But he had seen Jesse in the coffee shop every day for at least a year. They had started getting to know each other on a particularly difficult day several months before. She was closing and let him stay at his table long after hours. She helped him finish his article before the morning deadline. Ever since that day, he had eaten his lunch at the shop and sometimes stayed well past dinner. They would always vent about their days to each other, and sometimes she would take a break and sit with him. It's just a side project of mine, he said as he handed a few old newspaper clips to her, something I've been working on for years. Are all of these men connected somehow? she asked. She looked completely perplexed by the seemingly unrelated clippings. Possibly he said as he opened a document on his laptop. It's a bit of a long story. How much time do you have? Jesse looked around the store. There were only a few other customers, and they had all been served. I've got time. Please tell me. Carson felt a bit uneasy about sharing something so personal with her, but for some reason he felt compelled to open up to Jesse. Buckle up, he said as he made room for her next to him in the booth. This is quite a conspiracy theory. You may think I'm crazy after this and never talk to me again. Oh, hush, she said as she slid into the seat next to him. I already think you're crazy, so you have nothing to worry about. Okay, then, Carson said as the two laughed. For any of this to make sense, you need to know a little bit about me and my family. He pulled up a few pictures from his childhood. This is my mom. She died when I was ten. She was beautiful, Jesse said. I'm sorry, that must have been really hard. My father took it the hardest, Carson continued. Believe it or not, he was a journalist. He worked for the Herald here in town. After Mom died, he was never really the same again. He lost his job because he refused to work on any other story except this one. The one you're working on now? Yep. Like I said, this is a deep conspiracy theory. My father was convinced that somebody had killed my mom. According to his notes, she had been keeping secrets from him. She would have meetings late at night, and she wouldn't tell him who she was with. He followed her to a meeting once and was attacked at the door by bodyguards. 
He was convinced that she was involved with dangerous people and wanted to protect her. This led to their fights, which continued until she died. Carson pulled up a picture of his mom's headstone. Around it were countless colorful floral arrangements, including a strange wreath of roses. Do you see this wreath? He asked while pointing to the picture. The black one with a white rose at the top? Jesse asked. That's the one, he said, as he opened a folder named Headstones. My father was convinced that it was left by the people who killed her. He started doing research into the people he knew may have been part of this group and started to find something strange. He moved the laptop in front of Jesse. These are all of the headstones he was able to find in his research. All of these men, going back generations, have the same wreath laid on their graves. There is no record of them, even some of the more recent ones like my mom's. Nobody saw who laid the wreath or what it means. Is your dad investigating this with you? Jesse asked. No, my father and I didn't have much of a relationship growing up. My grandparents raised me after he left. So why are you interested in it, if you don't mind me asking? No, it's fine. I guess he died five or six years ago, but I didn't go to the funeral. One day, a strange man showed up in my office and told me that my father had willed me his crappy apartment and all of his old junk. I decided to check it out and came across all of his research into these wreaths, like a whole bedroom filled with boxes of information. I found the wreath from my mom's grave, along with a letter where he promised he would take care of me after she was gone. So naturally, when I saw that, I got super drunk and went to the cemetery where he was buried to yell at him or let off steam or something, and that's when I saw this. He turned his laptop towards Jesse again. This is his headstone, covered in flowers by people who didn't know him the way I did, people who didn't know he abandoned his 10-year-old son who just lost his mother. Carson could feel himself getting angry. He must have shown it in his face because Jesse reached out and took his hand in hers. You don't have to keep talking about this, she said with a concerned look on her face. I appreciate you sharing, but I didn't mean to reopen old wounds. I'm okay, he said as he pulled his hand away to wipe a tear from the corner of his eye. He knew Jesse was just trying to be nice and comfort him, but he didn't want to develop feelings for her if she was just being nice to a customer. Anyway, if you look in the middle of the picture, what do you see? He had a wreath too, Jesse exclaimed. Exactly. He was a man so deep in a conspiracy theory that he left his family and lost his job, but somehow this shows up on his grave. I think it has to be more than a coincidence. I think he was right about there being a secret organization out there, and if all of these powerful men throughout history were part of it, their reach and influence could be unfathomable. So now you want to prove that your father was right and expose the secret organization? Jesse asked with a tone of excitement in her voice. I don't care about my father, and I'm most certainly not doing it for him, but I think he may have been onto something. The reporter in me wants to get to the bottom of this mystery, and I need to know how my mom became involved. Well, count me in, said Jesse. What do you mean? I mean... I want to help you solve this mystery. I want to help you expose this conspiracy and hopefully get some answers about your parents. Carson was unsure. He liked Jesse a lot, but he had never trusted another person with this story. What if they hit the same dead ends as his father? What if they never find a single connection? What if they find something dangerous and something happens to her? 
What if she can help him see something he has been missing for years? What if she is the key to solving this mystery? Partners? He asked as he reached out his hand to shake hers. Partners. Tuesday, January 2nd, 1984. The last meeting I witnessed was on the first Monday of a month. So, on a hunch, I decided to stake out the church the day after New Year's. I was so right. This time, on top of the men I saw last month, I saw my boss's son, Harold Gardner. I know he is not as sharp as the old man, so I think I will tail him for a while. Friday, January 13, 1984 I had followed Francis Gardner's son Harold around for a week. I didn't learn too much about their secret club, but I did record enough business malpractice for ten lawsuits. His questionable business decisions and blowing daddy's money aside, he does know how to follow orders. I watched him receive calls in his office, then immediately get up, get in his car, pick something up, take it somewhere else, drop it off, and go back to work like nothing ever happened. Today was the most peculiar excursion of all. He stopped by a flower shop in the finance district, then I followed him to a cemetery on the outskirts of town. There was nobody around. His car pulled up to a fairly new gravesite. Had somebody paid him to lay flowers at a loved one's grave? Stranger things have happened. I watched from outside the fence as he laid what looked like a black wreath against the headstone. Once his car drove away, I entered the cemetery and took a picture of what I saw. The headstone belonged to a man named Joseph Maisel. I did not know much about who he was, but research later showed me he owned a family diamond business. On top of the grave, Harold had placed a wreath made of black roses and a single white rose on top. The wreath was the first tangible clue I ever had, and I was not going to waste it. The first thing I did was visit some of the more elite cemeteries around the city. I interviewed a lot of the groundskeepers and asked if they had seen a wreath like it before. Most of them did not remember or care to talk to me, but a few did remember seeing something like it on some of the bigger headstones. One man was even able to walk me over to a headstone that still had one on it. I started digging deeper and found that the wreaths had been in photographs at state funerals. Highly regarded, well-known politicians and public figures all had the same wreath. These men had to be part of this organization, but they lived all across the country. This conspiracy was nationwide, possibly global. The next thing I did was interview some of the widows of these men. I pretended to be a reporter, doing pieces on manor houses in the area. Many did not pass up the opportunity to show off their wealth. While interviewing them, I steered the conversation to their families, and in particular their husbands. A couple alluded to a men's club or fraternity, but did not get very specific. However, all of the ones that shared did verify the first of the month meeting. The icing on the cake, however, came when interviewing one widow in particular. She was very open about her life and her husband's secrets. She said she heard him refer to his club as The Order. This was another lead. I will pursue it with Harold Gardner and try to get him to talk. I have quite a plan. Three days after Carson first shared his father's conspiracy theory with Jesse, the two met up for dinner after work. For the next two weeks after that, 
They spent their evenings at the coffee shop together, looking through Carson's dad's files one box at a time. Jesse eventually suggested meeting at Carson's place so he wouldn't have to haul more boxes across town. Although he was somewhat uncomfortable with the idea, his desire to stop carrying boxes to the office with him won out, and they made plans for the following Monday. Carson left work early to clean his apartment. He had not had a single visitor since he moved in three years prior. He didn't own much furniture, and was quite frankly a bit embarrassed to be showing it off. On the other hand, he knew that he did not want to lug heavy boxes of files to work every day, so this would have to do. So if you haven't guessed it yet, this is the apartment my father left me in his will, Carson said as he gave Jesse a quick tour. This place is huge, she said as they entered the kitchen, especially for downtown. There are technically two bedrooms, but as you saw, one of them is being used as storage unit for old files and random junk. The two sat down at the only table he owned. It was a folding card table that looked like it was ready to collapse. I know I need to invest in some furniture, Carson said, as Jesse carefully sat down on an old wooden chair. I'm sorry. Hey, if you have all you need, then you don't have to invest in anything as far as I'm concerned. The two ate Chinese takeout and talked about their days. Carson had been assigned a new story about an up-and-coming politician from a poor neighborhood. Jesse had to train a new hire and dealt with a customer who spilled their coffee on their laptop. When they had finished eating, they moved the table and chairs to the living room. Carson went to the storage room and pulled out two new boxes to look through. They mostly sat in silence, only speaking up when they found something interesting. Carson's box was mostly receipts and newspaper articles about politicians or businessmen. Occasionally, he would see his father's handwritten notes along the edges, ideas like possible connection or missing piece. An hour passed before Jesse broke the silence with an excited gasp. Whoa, Carson, you have to check this out. Excitedly, he stood up and walked around the table to her side. In her hands was an old-looking piece of paper that looked like it had been ripped out of a notebook. It looks like a diary or journal entry, Jesse said as she inspected the front and back. Stuart Kelly. Do you know who that is? No, Carson answered. I mean, my mom's name was Kelly, but I don't know anybody named Stuart. Kelly James. It's a nice name, Jesse said as she absentmindedly scrolled through search results on her laptop. Morgan James, actually, said Carson. She hyphenated. Kelly Elaine Morgan James. I was raised by my grandpa and grandma Morgan after she died. Jesse stopped scrolling and met Carson's gaze. I'm sorry, I didn't mean... It's okay, Carson interrupted. I'm good. Are there more pages like that in the box? Um, it was just by itself in between these folders. Jesse said as they started emptying her box. I don't think there is. Sorry, Carson. No worries. Let's see what we can find online with just this page. Twenty minutes later, Carson glanced at his phone and realized it was almost 3 a.m. Oh crap, I'm sorry. I completely lost track of time. Jessie laughed as she started putting on her shoes. Don't be sorry. I had a lot of fun. I may need to drink more coffee than I sell today, but I'll survive. You can stay here if you want, Carson offered. You can have the bedroom. I can sleep out here. That's really sweet to offer, said Jessie as she zipped up her coat. But I'm not going to make you sleep on the floor. I'll be okay. I'll go home, sleep for an hour or so, go to work, and maybe take a nap at lunch. Carson opened the door for her. Well, thanks for all your help with this stuff. Anytime, she replied with a smile on her face. 
Come visit me at the shop tomorrow? Yeah, I'll do that. Carson awkwardly reached out for a handshake before Jesse went in for a one-armed side hug. We'll work on that, Jesse said while holding back laughter. Good night. As he watched her walk away, Carson felt his cheeks blush. He couldn't help but smile. This was the best night he had had in years, maybe ever. Good night, partner. Sleep well. Carson could not sleep all night. Instead, he stayed up and researched connections between Stuart Kelly and the Black Wreaths. He found several people with the name, but none that stood out too much. The morning sun was beginning to shine through the blinds, and Carson was about to give up and go to bed when he received a mysterious email. You are asking questions in the wrong places. You said you have something written by Stuart Kelly. Prove it. Reply to this with a picture of the pages, or you will not hear from me ever again. You have five minutes. Order seeker. Carson was intrigued. The bottom of the email had a countdown timer ticking away. The sender had also managed to hide his email address. This could be some sort of trap, but Carson didn't see the harm in a little high-risk, high-reward scenario. He pulled out his phone and took a picture of the page. He intentionally covered most of the body with his hand. He replied, Order Seeker, if you want to see what I have, I want to see everything you have about this secret organization. Let's compare notes and see what we can find together. He attached the picture and hit send. He was surprised to see that the message went away. There was no trace of him receiving or sending an email. Just as he was about to close his laptop, he heard an email notification come in. Terms acceptable. An address will be sent to you at precisely 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. The message will be viewable for exactly 30 seconds. Be at the address at precisely 12.45 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Knock on Unit 48 exactly seven times. Tell no one why you are there. Order Seeker. Carson wasn't sure how to feel about his upcoming rendezvous. He had met with informants and sources in sketchy ways before, but this was extreme. He laid down on his mattress to take an hour nap. Can't wait to tell Jesse. Wednesday, January 18th, 1984. Yesterday, I blackmailed Harold Gardner. I had befriended Harold Gardner's secretary and convinced her to do some research for me. She is sweet, but dumb as a rock, so she didn't think anything of it. I convinced her to record one of her boss's phone calls where he would be given an order and would leave immediately. She, of course, did this for $100 and a new purse. I listened to the recording and set my plan in action. The next day, I called Harold's office at the same time as his call the previous day. He seemed surprised to be getting another order so soon, but did not question it. I very flatly delivered an address and hung up. His secretary called me and told me that he had just left, just like usual. Everything was working out the way it was supposed to. A friend of mine works as a waitress at a small cafe across the street from the gas station I sent Harold to. I was able to watch him pull into a parking spot right on time. I paid a little boy to tell Harold, the phone is for you, Mr. Gardner. As soon as the kid ran away, I called the payphone on the wall next to him. When he answered, I had to disguise my voice. With as deep and scruffy of a voice as I could, I told him to look under the phone book. There, he would find a manila envelope. He should open it and verify the contents. Inside was a photo of him laying the wreath on Joseph Maisel's grave, 
along with all of my documented notes on his business malpractice since I started following him. He asked what I wanted. I told him point blank that I wanted the order. I wanted in. I told him I knew where and when they met already and that I was ready to expose the whole operation. He told me I didn't know what I was getting myself into, that he was willing to walk away from this and pretend it never happened and I could go back to my normal life before it was too late. I grew a bit angry and impatient and screamed that he needed to give me something right now. Reluctantly, he said, okay, okay, okay. I can't get you into the meeting. I refuse to break my oaths. Maybe go talk to Joseph's wife. She's lovely, and without her, I would not have made it here. I was confused because Maisel's wife had died before him, so I asked him if he knew that. He sounded angry and said, Do you know who's in or not? You don't know anything, do you? You are in way over your head, kid. Let it go. He hung up and drove away, but I had a new lead. It wasn't the best, but it was a start. I knew the gardeners were leaving soon for their yearly tour of their European assets. It may be time to pay the gardener's home a visit. Carson groaned as his alarm clock woke him. He had not pulled an all-nighter since he was in college. While he slowly got ready, he remembered the meeting he was having at lunch. Parents always tell their kids to never talk to strangers and never agree to meet someone that you have met online. Well, today he was breaking all of those rules in the most extreme way possible. He messaged Jesse and told her that he had something exciting to tell her. He grabbed his messenger bag and was off. Mornings in the city are never dull. While Carson took the same route to work every morning, he rarely saw the same people two days in a row. This morning's winner of the Strangest Thing I Saw Today award went to the old lady wearing a shower cap and nightgown walking two cats on leashes. A close second place went to the man passed out on the subway handcuffed to the sport rail. Two stops and three blocks later, Carson entered the coffee shop. There was a short line, so he watched as Jesse continued training a new guy. When he reached the counter, Jesse finally saw him. Hey, she said with a big smile on her face. Good morning, sir. What can I get started for you today? Said the trainee. Carson couldn't tell if the kid was tired or just bored. Oh, I'll take care of this one, Ryan. Go bust tables really quick. Fine, he said unenthusiastically as he walked away. He seems fun, Carson said while trying not to laugh. Jesse rolled her eyes. He's frustrating, but we need bodies right now, so we're stuck with him. What's the exciting news? You know the journal page we found last night? Well, I couldn't sleep, so I stayed up researching everything I could about this Stuart guy. I even went on some conspiracy theorist chat rooms. That's how deep I went. Jesse looked concerned, but intrigued. So, I was about to give up when, out of nowhere, I got this email. I couldn't see who it was from, and as soon as I responded, it was gone. But basically, I am meeting some guy who goes by the name Order Seeker at an address he will send me at 10 that will disappear after 30 seconds. I feel like I'm in a spy movie. Carson, that is so dangerous, Jessie said with a look of concern on her face. I'll be fine, he tried to reassure her. I've met with sketchy sources before. Do you have anything to protect you? Like pepper spray or a taser? Are you bringing anyone as backup? No, I usually just... Then I'm coming with you. No way, 
Carson protested. That would be dangerous. I guess you'll have to watch my back then, huh, partner? Jessie quickly walked to the back of the shop and re-emerged with her purse. I have mace and a taser, she said as she pulled out each item. I'm going with you. You need backup, partner. One creep can't take us both out. Carson couldn't help but laugh. Jessie was being ridiculous, but it would be fun to spend more time with her. Okay, partner, Carson said as he began walking towards the door. I'll message you. 9.59. Carson had been nervously watching the clock on his phone for the last two minutes. He dared not miss the message from Order Seeker. Come on, come on, come on, come on. 10 o'clock. A new message popped up on Carson's phone. He quickly wrote down the address on the screen before it disappeared without a trace. With a big smile on his face, he sent a message to Jesse. Got the address. Be ready to go at 11.30. Carson and Jesse took the subway down to the docks. A ten-minute walk later, and they were in front of a chain-link fence with a sign reading, Store for Less Storage Units. This isn't exactly the best neighborhood, said Jesse, as she stayed close to Carson. She had been holding her pepper spray in her hand since they got on the subway. The entrance to the storage facility was two large chain-link gates. One of them was hanging at an angle, the other looked like it had been ripped off by a car. Excellent security, Jesse said with a nervous laugh. We'll be okay, Carson said while trying to appear confident. He checked his watch and saw that it was 12.40. Come on, we're looking for Unit 48. The longer they walked around the complex, the more nervous Carson felt. The place was eerily quiet, but he felt like they were being watched. With two minutes left, they finally found number 48. This is it, he said while trying not to hide how scared he was. You sure about this? Jesse asked. You know you don't have to go through with this. I do, but this is the first lead I've had in years, and I just feel like I have to know what's behind this door. Okay, Jesse said as she took a deep breath. I've got your back. Carson watched the clock change to 12.45, then knocked exactly seven times on the cold metal door. Immediately, Carson heard the unmistakable sound of a gun being cocked behind his head. Don't freaking move! Hands in the air, both of you! Carson and Jesse quickly threw their hands in the air. Carson could tell it was a man's voice. It's okay, Carson said, trying to sound authoritative. We don't have any weapons. She just has a pepper spray in her right hand. What's in the bag? The man demanded. A notepad, a laptop, a camera, an extra lens. Oh, and a couple chargers, Carson answered. Wallets, now! Carson pulled out his wallet and felt the man yank it from his hand. Carson James and... Jesse Ford, huh? Why are you here? Carson was not sure how to answer. He knew that he was not supposed to tell anyone why he was there, but if this was Order Seeker, he needed to communicate that he knew what was going on. We are seeking order, that is all. After a few seconds, the man pushed Jesse forward. Enter code 31193. She opened the lock. The man shoved Carson forward. Now you open the door. Carson lifted the heavy garage door. In front of them was a completely empty unit. Get inside, both of you. Come on, man, you can't be serious, Carson said, trying not to get annoyed. Move or I'll shoot her. Carson looked at Jessie, who had tears running down her face. Okay, okay, we'll do it, we'll do it. All the way to the back wall, the man demanded. They slowly walked inside. 
They were about halfway in when Carson felt himself unexpectedly yanked backwards. Hey! Carson tumbled backwards out of the unit. He looked up and saw the man close the door as Jessie turned around with a look of terror on her face. Carson watched helplessly as he locked the door. The man was dressed in all black and had his face covered with a white bandana and sunglasses. As Jessie screamed for help and pounded on the garage door, the man pointed the gun at Carson. Get up. We need to talk. To be continued.